Last month, volatility returned with a bang to financial markets. The trend of major central banks exiting the unprecedented monetary stimulus of the past decade is only partially offset by improving economic growth. Markets have not gone into meltdown since the early February sell-off, but with valuations stretched after years of stimulus, investors are particularly sensitive to any unexpected news. I'm James Norrington for Investors Chronicle, and today I'm joined by Eric Norland, Senior Economist at CME Group, which is the world's largest and most diverse derivatives marketplace. Hopefully today we can try and shed some light on the themes investors should consider as central banks exit the QE era. Welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. Central banks across the Western world are more hawkish about interest rate rises over the coming year. What does this mean for markets, and are central bank targets for inflation credible? Well, first of all, with respect to the targets for inflation, I would argue that they are very, very credible. And it's important to remember why they were implemented in the first place. During the 1970s and 1980s, we had very, very high and often very erratic rates of inflation that, depending on the country, ranged anywhere from maybe 3 or 4% on the low end to sometimes well into the double digits. The establishment of such inflation targets have been an extraordinary success. They have reduced inflation in most countries to at or below target, which for most countries means at or below 2 or 2.5%, um, and created a great deal of stability. But as you alluded to, though, this also in some ways makes the markets very vulnerable to shocks. Because we have such low and stable inflation, the markets have essentially allowed themselves to be levered up to much, much greater levels now, uh, much higher levels of valuation than was possible in the past when economic conditions were more volatile. And hence, the markets are now more susceptible to experiencing shocks if things don't turn out as expected with respect to interest rates or inflation. Jerome Powell, we saw, was bullish on the U.S. economy um, and and, uh, sort of tried to couch the inflation news in positive terms. Is he doing a good enough job at at controlling the narrative around inflation to the markets? And are other central banks being as forthright about their policy? And if they aren't, I'm thinking really the Bank of Japan here, are they storing up surprises which could shock markets? Well, with respect to Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve, he had to deal with one month of fairly strong inflation numbers. We had a 0.5 read on headline CPI and also a fairly solid core number. Uh, But you have to remember that the year-on-year rates of inflation have been pretty stable in the U.S. at around 1.7%. So I really don't think you can argue that the Federal Reserve has in any way lost the narrative or is allowing inflation to escape from their control. Um, Likewise, we see fairly minimal wage pressures in the U.S., with average hourly earnings growing still below 3% per year despite very low unemployment. If you look over here in Europe, for example, in the euro area, we still see very low, very stable rates of inflation, a much younger economic recovery, uh, still with much higher levels of unemployment. Um, I don't think that inflation's a big risk in the short term in the euro area. Here in the United Kingdom, it's, of course, a somewhat different story. We had the shock of Brexit, uh, which caused a temporary very sharp move into currency downward, which caused a pop in inflation. But that's now going to be fading from the numbers, especially as the British pound begins to recover from its lows. So I think that here in the United Kingdom, it's hard to argue that the Bank of England has lost a narrative on inflation and the Bank of England is doing a pretty good job of signaling its coming moves to the market. 
we can see sort of more demand for, for capital expenditure, which can, can boost the demand in the economy. But also at the same time, we're there's sort of tightening monetary conditions. Uh, is this likely to provide a significant upside for inflation, just the demand and supply for money and, and have central banks price that in? I really don't think that we're going to have a significant amount of inflation coming from stronger demand for CapEx or capital expenditure. The reason for that is that CapEx is very closely tied to the state of consumer spending. Uh, when consumer spending was very weak for many years following the financial crisis, many corporations didn't see a particular need to upgrade capital expenditure only to produce goods for which there was no demand. However, now as we move into the later stages of a, an economic recovery, a more mature phase, we're likely to see fairly robust growth in consumer spending. And so that's likely to be matched by fairly strong capital expenditures. But will that create inflation? I would argue that the answer to that is probably no. Um, and the reason for that is if you look back to the late 1990s, we were in a very strong economic recovery. We had tremendous growth in consumer spending and an enormous boom in capital expenditures. Did that create inflation? The answer is no, it did not. And the reason was very, very simple. It's because as capital expenditure is brought online, it expands productive capacity, which expands the supply of goods in a larger supply of goods actually keeps a lid on the level of inflation. So we're seeing sort of a expanding story in the, in the economy and there are certain sectors in stock markets that are probably going to do better and, and with QE being wound in um, we're likely to see greater dispersion in the returns between sectors in a sort of a tightening monetary environment which sectors could do best in the economy particularly in the stock markets. So for UK investor for example what's looking attractive right now? Well, I think that the U.S. markets provide a great lesson for what's likely to occur here in the United Kingdom and also across the channel in the rest of Europe. And that is that as the Federal Reserve ended QE and then eventually began to increase interest rates, we saw a tremendous outperformance of financial stocks, particularly banking stocks, uh, which had suffered mightily under the weight of zero interest rate policy. So as that was lifted, we saw a big rally in financial stocks. Um, we also had a few other relative outperformers. Consumer discretionary and staple stocks did relatively well. Uh, technology stocks did relatively well. Um, on the other hand, there were interest-sensitive sectors, particularly the utility companies that underperformed quite significantly. What we are also seeing is rising bond yields, which has an impact on the equity premium. What are the risks of falling bond prices and rising yields uh, for the equity markets, and, and how do you see that playing out? Well, I think that there are enormous risks, um, in part because the equity markets, particularly in the United States, have achieved very, very high valuation levels, in part because the alternative bonds were so unbelievably unattractive for so many years. Um, now, here in Europe, that's still the case. The U.S. Treasury is actually the highest yielding among the uh, sort of highly rated government bonds around the world. Um, it has a much higher yield than the gilt here in the United Kingdom, than the Bund over in Germany. Even Italian government bonds, which have a triple B rating, have lower yields than U.S. Treasuries. Japanese government bonds also have extremely low yields. So as those yields or I should say, if those yields begin to rise, um, that could take some wind out of the equity risk premium and potentially make the equity market either more vulnerable to shocks and corrections as it moves higher, or eventually could put it into a bear market. 
markets the volatility reverted remarkably quickly after the February turmoil we saw. I mean, are investors just getting a bit more comfortable with risk now? I don't know that investors are actually more comfortable with risk now. But what I do think happens is that very generous monetary policies depress volatility, and the reason for that is that when central banks create too much money. A lot of that money finds its way into financial markets, and that makes it very easy for buyers to find sellers and sellers to find buyers. Which means that prices can move in very narrow channels, or when prices move higher, in the case of the equity market, they tend to do so in a fairly orderly fashion. So the great risk here is that if central banks begin to remove some of that liquidity, that we could see markets to become much more vulnerable to big spikes in volatility. With the U.S.、Uh, Treasury yields so far ahead of, of many of their peers, what effect does this have on the currency markets? One of the most intriguing relationships at the moment is the dollar-yen pair. What are the ramifications of, of an overly strong yen for the Bank of Japan's policy, and is there a sort of a carry trade opportunity emerging? So, from the Bank of Japan's perspective, an overly strong yen is really the nightmare scenario.、Uh, Japan has very weak domestic demand、um, as a result of a very rapidly aging population whose consumer spending is at best stagnant, and Japan also really relies to a great extent on export markets. As a result, they rely to an even greater extent on having a fairly weak yen. So, if the yen were to strengthen dramatically, that makes things very complicated for the bank. Bank of Japan. The Bank of Japan's quantitative easing program is much, much larger than what's been undertaken in the euro area here in Britain or over in the United States. Those three central banks have achieved. Balance sheet to GDP ratios of 25 to 33 percent. Japan's already up at 90 percent to GDP with respect to the size of the central bank's balance sheet. So. If the yen strengthens dramatically, that could cause them to extend that bond buying program. Now, on the other hand, there's no shortage of bonds to buy. Japan's public debt is 230 percent of GDP, which is almost twice of Italy's.、Uh, so there's clearly no shortage of public debt to be purchased. On the other hand, when it comes to the carry trade. The carry trade is very interesting. So、uh, the carry trade is a great temptation to borrow in yen at zero percent and to lend into higher yielding currencies. So we've already seen in the past the kind of disaster that can result、uh, when that occurs. So if you go back to 1998,、um, in 1997 and 1998, many hedge funds and other entities had been borrowing in yen at zero percent and had been lending into other currencies, and this was a very profitable trade until Russia defaulted on its. Debt, which provoked the explosion of the hedge fund long-term capital management that had a very violent unwinding, and over a two-day period in October 1998, the yen rose 15 percent against the U.S. dollar. But you have to remember that things are very different today than they were back then, and there's two key differences. First, Japan is no longer the only zero-rate currency. Now we have the euro, which is a zero-rate currency. We have the Swiss franc, which is a zero-rate currency. We have many other currencies with very low interest rates. Secondly, the interest rate differentials are much smaller today than they were back then. You know, back in 1998, when that crisis struck, Fed funds in the United States was at 5.5 percent. Interest rates here in Europe were sort of at analogous levels, between three and six percent, depending on the country, and. Japan then had zero rates, and they were the only funding currency in existence. Now there's multiple funding currencies, much narrower interest rate differentials. I don't think it's as big a risk today as it was back then. 
Okay, so just to finish up with global asset allocators, uh, which regions look most attractive now for equity investors and for bond investors? Yeah, I think that for bond investors, the United States looks the most attractive uh, for the reason I mentioned earlier, which is that Treasury yields are just so much higher than any comparable bond. If you look at Australia, if you look at Canada, the United Kingdom, Switzerland, the Euro area, Japan, they all have much, much lower yields. So in the event that we have an equity correction and it provokes a flight to quality, the flight to quality instrument that is likely to benefit the most is the U.S. government debt market. On the other hand, I think in terms of the equity market, the valuation levels here in Europe, even though they're somewhat high by historical standards are nowhere near as stretched as they are on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, doing transatlantic equity comparisons, it was a complicated business in part because the mix of industries is very different. For example, the S&P 500 has a 25% allocation to technology stocks. Technology stocks barely figure into the FTSE or into the European equity indices at all. And tech stocks, of course, tend to attract higher levels evaluation than the more traditional banks and utilities and telecom companies that dominate indices on this side of the Atlantic. Okay, great. Eric Norland, thank you very much. For more analysis of the key economic questions of the day, check out IC Questions on the Investors Chronicle website, where you can download more podcasts from Acast, iTunes, or your usual podcast destination. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.